first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Hey, everybody. How you doing? Well, that's good. Welcome to a very special edition of BSH Radio. While my partners are off for Labor Day, I... Bill Matcher, Director of Fun and Games. Uh, I have a very special interview with you. Uh, I am bringing you one of my longest tenured friends, I would say. Uh, He is a mental training and peak performance specialist at Capex Consulting in Pittsburgh. Is it Capex or K-P-E-X? Capex. Capex. All right. Awesome. Uh, He has a master's degree in sports and performance psychology from the University of Denver. Let me introduce to you, honestly, most importantly, the guy who told me I was one of the best teammates he ever played hockey with, Donato Finelli. How are you tonight, Donato? Well, let's let's get it clear right away, Bill. You were one of my favorite teammates of all time from a strictly mental standpoint. Yeah. If we're talking skating, sick handling shot, you were you were brutal. You were a, a, a terrible hockey player. But as far as the mentality for a teammate, man, I knew you were always going to give it your best. I knew you always had my back in whatever fights we got into. And I know we were going to joke around and, and drink beers after the game, win or lose. So hey. From a mental standpoint, yes, absolutely. You were one of my favorite, if not my number one favorite teammate of all time. Donato, I take exception to the skating part. The, the shooting and passing and puck handling and knowing what to do, yeah, that was tough. But I could skate. But anyway, we're here to uh, talk about what you do, Donato. Uh, I, I, you and I have just gotten in basically a bunch of drunk conversations about what it is to be uh, a mental... I forget it. Mental training and peak performance specialist. And with a lot of things happening in sports right now, I thought this was a great time to dive into this, whether it be Carter Hart with his sports psychologist, things going on with the Phillies, things going on with Andrew Luck. It just seems like there's more of an emphasis than ever on the mental side of the game. So I wanted to start and talk to you. So first and foremost, I mean, what is a mental training and peak performance specialist? Well, let me play a little some mind games with you and your listeners and answer your question with a question. And so, Bill, if you were to put a percentage on it, how much of hockey would you say is mental? Uh, what's the uh, what's the quote? Ninety percent is half mental. It's I mean, everything is mental preparation, right? It's at least fifty percent, I would say. You need to have the skills and all that, but if you're not mentally prepared, it doesn't matter how good you are. I would say. Yeah, so you know, first, yeah, you're right. First and foremost, you need to have the, the physical and the, and the technical skills down first. But you know, you said it, it, it's at least fifty percent. So if it's at least if hockey's at least 50% mental, how much time do you think the average hockey player spends training the mental side? Do they spend 50% of their time doing it? I doubt most hockey players dedicate as much time to that aspect as they do learning how to do the Michigan, I would say. Right, right. You know, like like we anyone that's ever played hockey, anyone that's ever played any sport, anyone that's ever done any kind of performing would tell you that a big part of it is mental. And so that, that's essentially what my job is. Simply put, my job is help athletes develop mental toughness through mental skills training. And so my mission is, is to help these athletes use mental skills to 
optimize their potential, overcome challenges, and really just improve overall well-being. And the reason I'm qualified to do this work is because I have my master's degree in sport and performance psychology from the University of Denver. So I have advanced training in the science and application of sports psychology, as well as some generalized knowledge and training in counseling and psychology. All right. Uh, for when you say prepare for the mental aspects of the game, uh, sports performance is part of your specialty. So how does it differ from, say, traditional counseling or therapy or things like that? Right, right. That's a that's a really good question, and I think that it, it, it's it's important for uh, people uh, in the sport culture to understand what the difference between what I do and what traditional counseling or therapy is. So, my expertise is in performance enhancement. My expertise is not in mental health. Right. So when we say mental toughness, that's completely different than mental health. Mental health entails clinical issues, so things like depression, anxiety, addiction, PTSD, and these are things that are diagnosed and treated by a, a licensed psychologist or, or a licensed counselor. When we say mental toughness, those are skills and, and strategies that help an athlete to, to overcome challenges they face and ultimately reach their peak performance levels, right? And, and mental toughness is something that's developed through mental skills training. And it can also just enhance their overall well-being and also prevent in, in some of the other more clinical disorders or, or help them cope with some of those things. And so what I do, I, I think a lot of people have it in their head that they come in to some office with mahogany furniture and, and books, you know, miles long. And, you know, they lay down on the couch and they talk about their feelings. You're, you're not going to come down, lay down on the couch and, and talk about your feelings with me. Don't get me wrong, maybe there is a time and a place for that, but what I do, it, it, it's the, the type of work that I do, it, it's a lot more dynamic and it, it's holistic. And I think one of the really cool and exciting parts about the work that I do is that I, I can meet the athletes on their own turf and pun 110% intended there, but you know, I, I can meet athletes at, at the rink, I can meet them on the golf course. So much of the good work that I'm able to do is just simply having like little side conversations on the team bus or, or on the sidelines with the player. Because, you know, to be completely honest with you, none of this stuff is rocket science. I, I wouldn't go as far to say that it's common sense, but I think I could show you all the theories and, and all the research and all, all the science, and you would say, you know what, like that's like pretty logical. It, it just makes sense. And I think for a lot of these athletes, just hearing it from a different point of view or hearing it from a different perspective, I think that's what's able to help them it, it click for them and start to apply these skills. So th this is one of the aspects I've been most interested in since we've been talking about this stuff, is this idea of mental toughness. And you just went on an explanation of the differences, you know, mental health, uh, mental toughness. It's a different thing. But we talk about athletes, especially in my business, as a, uh, it's a, it's a binary state. You're either mentally tough or you're mentally weak. But you've talked to me about how this is a developable skill. Like, it's the same, not the same as, but you can do things to improve it like you can puck handling or whatever. Just how do you go about doing that? Well, you know, these these are skills. So they, they are absolutely something that can be developed and, and, and improved with, with training and practice. Um, it, and it really just depends on what the skill is. Uh, I to start off with my work is just a lot of getting to know the athlete and understand them because with all of these mental skills they're not one size fits all 
they work a little bit differently for every everyone else you know everyone comes in with different experiences different strengths different weaknesses different things that they want to work on different things that i think would be beneficial for them and so a lot of it is, is just having conversation and, and getting deeper to understand deeper meaning in things i think sometimes it, it can be rather abstract um it it is something that is to be honest with you it's hard to measure it, it is hard to quantify you know mental toughness isn't necessarily something that you can put your hands on and, and hold it it's one of those things that when you see it you just kind of know it um and to be honest with you i think that's one of the biggest challenges for, for the professionals in my field that we're in because we, we live in a numbers driven society and sports in particular are, are so numbers driven so it, it's it being really hard to, to show the some, some quantifiability behind mental skills it, it, it's a challenge to overcome because you know so many of these old school people want to see you know hard results they want to see numbers and for me that's tough to do i think the best way to do it is taking a step back and just looking at the big, bigger picture you know is is the athlete performing at their highest level more consistently does the athlete say that they, they feel more confident they, they feel more motivated they're, they're better able to focus are, are, are the coaches seeing the, the, the team buy in and you know be, be part of the team and, and be motivated and all and you know like I said it, it is hard to quantify but there is some work to be able to do that we're going on right now uh, dr. Scott Coleman he's the, the sports psychologist for the Detroit Lions and uh, Miami Dolphins and he created what's called the the AIQ the athlete intelligent quotient and uh, the AIQ is an intelligence test that assesses the innate cognitive abilities that are utilized in sport, like uh, attaining, developing, and, and applying athletic skills, strategies, and talents. And so, you know, I think you hear a lot of stories from like combines and all about like the, the players getting asked like these really bizarre yeah. things. And that, what this is, is not that. A lot of that is, is just throwing shit out of wall and, and seeing what's sticks yeah i feel like that a lot of that not to cut you off but i feel like a lot of so much of that comes from the idea that you said this isn't quantifiable so you have these basically untrained guys but they know sports so they go let's just throw something ridiculous at him and see how he reacts yes maybe his composure when you say hey have you ever had sex with a man maybe his composure can tell you something in that situation or maybe you're just screwing with him there's really no way to know but since they're not trained in this stuff it's their best shot at kind of what you do right yeah i mean I, I, you know like there's some of those questions they ask there is no right or wrong answer they're, they're just they're you know, seeing how you react they respond you know it, it, I, and you know what i'm sure each team has completely different reasons of why they would ask certain questions the aiq is driven to be more quantifiable it, it's it's backed by by empirically validated evidence now so there, there's a lot more hardcore science and data behind this and now the AIQ is becoming fairly commonplace in, in the NHL, NFL, NBA, MLB and NCAA and so I think that's uh, the, the step in the direction that the field's going to go is, is figuring out how all this stuff can become more quantifiable so we can have some, some numbers to, to back up. All right, excellent. Uh, we'll get into the idea of it being quantifiable a little bit more as we move along. But first, I just want to get a little bit more background information on you. Uh, you attended, obviously, the University of Denver, got your master's degree there. Uh, when when did you attend? Uh, so I graduated uh, June 2018. It was a two-year program. 
All right, so yeah, that's we drove you out there in 2016, right? That's when that was. It was a great road trip. Yeah. You, you crushed it on the trail mix game. Trail mix is what it's all about, man. Uh, you worked with the hockey program in some capacity, right? Yeah, so um, I was just simply a hockey operations volunteer. Um, so I got to hang out in the press box for home games and track stats and help uh, break down film after the games. I got to hang around at practices. Um, I learned a lot about the, some of the logistics of, of college hockey as far as like scheduling um, planning out things and all and it was just it was a really cool experience to have you know uh, a front row seat to, to a national championship season and then, and then a frozen four season in 2018 um, so yeah that, that was a you know even the, I helped in a very limited capacity and it was just a volunteer work but you know it was really cool to, to be around uh, that team at that time you uh, you told me that it was more so your professors than your work with the athletic department or the hockey team that really like uh, mo- some of your most interesting uh, some of your most interesting subjects. Oh yeah, the the professors I had at DU were awesome. Like they just some some of the really top notch and, and most respected people in this field. Like Dr. Mark Aowagi, he's the director of the program. He's a sports psychologist for the for the uh, Denver Broncos. And at least once a class, he would just say, like, drop this, like, little, like, one-liner that we would just be like, like, whoa, where did that come from? Um, and, you know, all the other professors, they, they have experience in working with the highest-level athletes. Um, being so close to Colorado Springs, uh, they all have experience working with the USOC, USOC, so working with the Olympians and, and Paralympians and all. And, yeah, I mean, like, my, my program at, at DU is awesome, man. Uh, I was so lucky to learn from some of the top people in the field. I just, how did you freaking get into this, dude? Like, how, like, what? <laughs> this is so ridiculous. It's, I can't imagine having such a serious job. Like, how did you get from, because, like, me and you played some hockey together. I know, like, you know, you wanted to be a coach at one point. How did this all come about for you? You know what, dude? I gotta be honest with you, that is my favorite question to ask my colleagues because everyone that works in this field has a cool story of why they work in this field. And I don't think anyone grows up one think dreaming about growing up to be the, the mental skills and peak performance consultant. Like no, like you wanna be the athlete out there playing. Of course. So most of the people in this field are, are people that come from an athletic background and whatever experiences they had along the way, whether good or bad, it ultimately led them to realize how important the mental side of it was. And so for me, you know, uh, I, I played uh, D1 ACHA hockey at Rutgers University uh, for four straight national championship appearances, for sure. Um, <laughs> and so after I stopped playing hockey, I got into coaching. And when you coach the game, you, you see it from a much different perspective than you do as a player. And very quickly through coaching, I realized that what held me most back as a player had absolutely nothing to do with my skill set. It was all between my ears, you know? And I, I was never the most talented player. I never had the most skill by any means. Like I always say, like I have Charlie Conway syndrome. Like I, you know, <laughs> I was gonna be a much better player than, or much better coach than a player. But, you know, like, I, I just, I played with no confidence, and I wasn't able to keep my emotions in check on the ice. And so this realization kind of sparked an interest in the mental side of sport, and so I started reading some different coaching books and all, and, you 
know, it was it was one thing led to another. It was never like some big aha moment. It was never like some something I had you know wanted to do for years and years and years. It was a, a, a lot of experiences adding up over time, and I think it really just goes back to my love for sports, man. Like I I fucking love sports and. I feel just like, like talking about the sports and you know like that's that's kind of how this idea for this whole interview came up like us just just hanging out like we normally do and, and talking about sports and like getting deep and like to the to the what ifs and all and just it, it, it it's such a cool job like it, the, the work is so fun it's, it's so exciting it, it's challenging and you know basically I just get to hang out with athletes and ask them a bunch of ridiculous questions <laughs> Sports and questions, my two favorite things. Yeah, man. Oh, you do enjoy very much asking the questions. Uh, I got it. We've you talked a little bit about how this isn't rocket science, but since, like everybody's motivators, every everybody is motivated by different things. And I want to get into the idea of motivation, but first, you talked about what held you back as an athlete. What would you say if there's a way to generalize? What are the top impediments? Uh, for athletes in terms of why they don't reach their peak performance? Why they don't reach their peak performance? You know, there, there isn't one overarching answer. It, it's it's going to be, and, and it depends. Yeah. You know, it depends on the athlete. It depends on the circumstances. Um, now, are, are you getting at, like, if, if some athletes are clutch and, and some are... Drunk? We could definitely, definitely get into that. Uh, I just kind of wanted to get into like if everybody's motivations are different how do you figure out how do you get to okay this works for this guy like how do you get to that this is how i'm coaching this guy me how i'm coaching this guy or just how, how i'm doing the work i'm doing with them like, how you're how you're telling him yeah how you're doing your work with an athlete so again it, it goes back to Use our expertise in the mental skills you use our expertise in you and we'll figure it out 
I, you know, it takes time. Um, there are like some quick fixes I could give you just like that, just like some, some quick pointers and all. Um, and you know, for some people, that's all they need. For other people, it, it takes a little bit more time. You got to get deeper into it. Like I said earlier, uh, the reason I thought this interview would really resonate with my listeners is because ever since Carter Hart came into Flyers fans' collective consciousness, we've been reading and hearing about his sports psychologist. And, I mean, it's it, it goes beyond just techniques. Like, we've seen when he gives up a goal, he squirts a water bottle into the air and just follows one drop all the way down to the ice, and it resets him completely mentally. Uh, is that kind of... Uh, we, we've talked about the difference between psychology and what you're doing, but is that kind of, when you say quick fixes, is that just one little thing? Like, it's different for everybody, but is that like, kind of what you do? Yeah, so from what uh, I've read, John Stevenson is his name. Yes, exactly. It, uh, John Stevenson. And, and the work that John Stevenson does with, with Carter Hart, as well as Braden Holpe. Yes. Uh, John Stevenson worked with Braden Holpe and I believe some other NHL players as well. From what I've read online, it sounds like it's performance work. Now, I, I don't know like how deep they get into things. You know, like John Stevenson isn't going to be allowed to tell us if there's some more clinical or mental health yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, really, I don't know what's going on in their sessions. However, from what I've read and, and what's been made the, available to the public, that's performance enhancement work. That, that's mental skills training. And so, yes, uh, Carter Hart's been... Carter Hart... Do, do, do. It's so good. It just <laughs> it just sticks, man. It just sticks. Yeah, I can't hear his name and not think of that. Um, that's, I need mental skills training to get it out of my head. <laughs> and yeah, so uh, Carter Hart's been working with John Stevenson since he was in grammar school. So, you know, since he was... And, you know, Carter Hardy said that when they first started having sessions, it was very basic, very foundational. And as he's gotten older and more mature and more experienced with it, they've gotten deeper and deeper and deeper into the stuff. I think the big thing with Carter Hart was that he started from a very young age. And so if parents are going to spend all this money for their kids to go to all these specialty camps and, and training seminars and all, why not invest in the mental skills training? Because they're going to learn life skills out of it. You know, they're going to, you know, any parent will, will most parents put their kids into sport because they want them to, to learn about teamwork and leadership and commitment and all. Well, you learn about mental skills, you learn how you can apply those, those kinds of things to your life. And so I think that was one of the big things for, for Carter Hart, establishing that strong foundation in this stuff from a very early age. And yeah, so Carter Hart has said that every single day he goes to what he calls his mental gym. And every day, whether that's just five minutes or 45 minutes, it's something that he does every single day. And it, it's something that he does every single day, just like any of his, of his other training, like his, his off-ice or, or, or on-ice training as well. And with, with when he goes to his mental gym, it could be some, something as simple as just five minutes of some breathing, 10 minutes of meditation, or, or maybe a half hour of some imagery. And regardless of what it is, uh, it, it's just it, it's something that that's just part of his, his everyday training. Um, you mentioned the water bottle thing; that's an awesome technique. Totally stole it and, and using it with some of my clients. Nice. Um, Braden Holby also uses it, and that's just like a simple little thing, just to kind of to bring it back to the present moment. And so what he's doing, he's he's squirting the water bottle in, in the air, and he's picking one little droplet and just following that one droplet all the way down to the ice. And it's just a very simple and quick way to kind of reset and, and refocus and bring himself back in, in the present moment. 
Um, one of the other things he does, well, uh, he, he uses imagery a lot in general. That, that's something he does before every game, you know, uh, taking time to, to sit and visualize the his opponent's strengths and, like, how he might respond to shooters. And some of the, the science behind imagery is really interesting. Uh, like, for instance, psycho psychoneuromuscular theory says that basically when whether it, the, the action is real or imagined, the same parts of your brain light up. So, you know, whether you're actually, do, like, you know, on the ice practicing making that save or yeah. just sitting there, on, on, you know, laying in your bed thinking about moving that part of your body and making that save, ultimately the same parts of your brain are lighting up. And now I, I'm, I don't know the neuroscience yeah. at all, but, like, I know enough to, to speak layman's terms. But I assume it's a lot like uh, how I get just as fired up when I imagine an argument I might have in my head as, like, when I actually might do, like, have that. Like, you know, I get just as angry yelling at the guy I was pissed off about 30 minutes ago as I would if I was, like, yelling at him just me to you. So I can see that. But you're talking about, like, um... Ah, you most of the time. Like when we see when when we see the pregame footage, like oh, here's Braden Holtby just kind of sitting in the stands or sitting in, on the bench and just kind of watching a mental game. Like that's what we're looking at him imagining it, and it's preparing him for the reality. You know, I I, I don't know if there's one most important mental skill, but I think most exceptional athletes are exceptional at imagery and visualization whether they, they know it or not. And, you know, it, it's funny because really all imagery is is just sitting there imagining yourself doing it. And it, it sounds pretty simple, but it, it's actually, like, really hard to do. And so the difference between visualization and imagery is that when you say visualization, it, it kind of insinuates that you're just seeing it, whereas imagery is, is about, about incorporating all of your senses. Okay. And so basically the more senses that you're using, the the, the better, the, the more real it becomes, you know? So if, if you're not just seeing it, but you're also feeling it, you're also hearing it, smelling it, tasting it, that, that's going to make these, these images even more real and it's going to make them even more effective. And so a guy like Braden Holby, he's, he's mastered imagery, you know, because he can sit in the stands and just imagine the entire game every minute detail of the game and the reason he's so good at it is because he practices it you know it, for for most of us just to sit there and, and use our imagination on something specific for five minutes would probably be really hard without you know trailing off but you know the, the more you practice it the better you're going to get at it and guys like Carter Hart and, and Braden Holby they, they practice these mental skills every single day and they get really good at them and as a result when it comes game time you know they they, they put them to use now, that's, a, that's something I'm really interested in because we spend a lot of time on BSH Radio maybe not explaining away the idea of intangibles, but basically saying since there's no measure for it, then trying to quantify it when evaluating a player or roster construction isn't something really that like fans can do or media can do. And honestly, probably front offices mostly, sh- oh, we got this guy for his intangibles. Like, well... What does that mean? <laughs> but you right. talked earlier about how you started the uh, the AIQ and how there's starting to be more of an idea of uh, being able to measure mental skills. What are, like, we talked about routine. Like, what does routine do for an athlete? And kind of related to superstition, because we wanted to get into the routine versus superstition idea. 
Right, right. Um, I think a lot of exceptional athletes are quite superstitious. You know, like Sidney Crosby has talked a lot about his superstitions. He's very open about the fact that he's very superstitious. Um, and athletes are also creatures of habits, whether they know it or not. Like they, they have their set routines that they really adhere to, and those routines are very important to them. Um, and so when you say, talk about a superstition, a superstition is something that has absolutely, absolutely nothing to do with your performance, even if you think it meant, right? A superstition is something that controls you, and they get more elaborate over time. So for instance, like the Phillies won a game because they got to put a bamboo plant in the, the clubhouse, so they won two games, and the whole freaking team had bamboo plants, and they went on a win streak because they were getting bamboo plants. No, they lost <laughs> any games because they got bamboo plants. The Phillies won some games because they actually played some decent baseball. Uh, similar routine we also have rituals and, and rituals are, are are similar to superstitions in, in that they're they're an ordered series of events that you do or an ordered series of superstitions that you do that have nothing to do with the actual performance when you say a routine that's something that gets you physically emotionally and, and mentally ready to play right and like i said that the, the top level athletes are, are really good at doing that because when you prepare for each game the same way, you come in with the same mindset every game. So when you're playing the really tough opponent, it's not, oh crap, like these guys are so good, like we're not gonna play so good. No, you're just coming in with the same relaxed confidence, similar to when they get and you're facing a lesser opponent. It's not, man, man, these guys are stink. We can just we can just turn it down this week. No, you're keeping that same consistent mindset. And you know, like we, any any athlete's gonna go through their physical routine to, to warm up. And so why not go through a little mental routine to, to mentally warm up? And I think for your routine to be most effective, it should tie in both the physical and the mental. Because, you know, you're, you're com- that's what you're doing out on the ice. You're combining body and mind. Yeah. Why not, why not prepare that way? Why not prepare body and mind together? And that's a, oh, I just, just to say, to relate this to some of our listeners maybe who aren't high-level athletes, uh, like you've been telling, you've been just preaching how important routine is for just getting getting your day, getting through your day, and like you kind of relate it to non athletes or people who maybe are just, like me. I have a I have an odd schedule, so like some days I sleep till ten, some days I sleep till one, and then I'm all thrown off and don't know what's up. These last couple days I've been setting a routine and sticking to it, and it just seems much easier to get everything done as it comes rather than just going with it as it as it happens you know like throughout college and all it didn't matter if i got four hours of sleep eight hours of sleep or ten hours of sleep i always woke up tired and i had no idea why when i learned a little bit about routines you know and and i started sticking to the same morning routine and the same evening routine just doing the same couple of things before bed and the same couple of things when i first get out of bed it made such a huge difference and, and my ability to, to feel awake and, and engaged throughout the day. And, yeah, I mean, routines, it, this is something that, you know, I think a lot of people have their routines, whether they realize it or not. They, they kind of do those same things. But just being consistent with, with a, a couple little things throughout your day, like you wake up the same time, you or, or, or you wake up around the same time, you're, you're eating around similar times, you're, you're exercising around similar times. And so, you know, like we – there's people like you that have like weird schedules and all and different schedules each day 
So I think it's really important to, to hold your routines lightly, to, to not lean on them too much. It, it's something that you don't necessarily like need. All right, like um, for instance, like you know, at big take big games for example. You know, like uh, like take the Super Bowl for example. You hear a lot of players talk about how the fact that they have to get there a couple days early. There's all the extra media. There's the prolonged pregame. There's the prolonged halftime show. Those are things that, that throw them out of your routine, right? And that, being creatures of habit, wanting that routine and having that routine thrown off, it, it messes with them mentally. So it, it's something that you should hold lightly. So maybe rather than waking up at the exact same time every day, maybe it's getting the same amount of sleep every night and the first the first three things you do whether it's like meditate go for a walk eat some breakfast like just just do that whatever it is time that you wake up so using those routines and, and having that that structure and the consistency but holding it lightly and allowing it to be flexible and adaptable to, to your own needs and your own circumstances i think that's i think that's good advice uh, i'm glad you brought up the idea of big games and how the more the spotlight can throw off your routine or just the pressure of a big, you know, the Super Bowl, Game 7, whatever it may be. Um, we all, I, I, It's another thing we kind of try to discount on the show, the idea of big game players, uh, clutch versus choker. You know, Sergei Bobrovsky, really good goalie all the time. And then the playoffs start, and he's not. But then suddenly, you know, he has a good playoff, and okay, cool. So that's over with. And I always just kind of say good athletes are good athletes and give them enough time. That bears true. But there is something to guys who seem to come through in big games more and guys who kind of don't. What, what is it about some guys who thrive under pressure, some athletes who don't? Is there something to it? You know, as a lifelong Eagles fan, <laughs> you cannot Agreed. As a professional in this field, I think there are some athletes that are just simply born with the psychological makeup that allow them to thrive under pressure. I think some guys are just wired that way to rise in the occasion. But I think similar to mental toughness, I think an athlete can develop the ability to thrive under pressure. I think using mental skills training to prepare you for that moment no, you, you, it, it, it's not. I, I think some guys just have it, but that doesn't mean that other guys don't, right? These, these guys yeah. can learn ways to, to, to get better under pressure. And the guys that are already good under pressure, you know, why not continue to... to they could better? always be better, yeah. Just because you do it once doesn't mean anything. Well, you know, one Super Bowl championship for the Eagles was freaking awesome. I'm but, set. You know, um, I think a lot of it starts with a perspective. First and foremost, pressure is a perspective, right? How you look at the situation. Are you looking at the situation as, oh man, like this is the playoffs, this is the biggest game of my life, this is what I've worked my whole life for. If I mess up, then I'm a failure and, and I blew it. Or are you looking at this like, man, like this is awesome. Like I, I get this really cool opportunity to go out here and, and play on the biggest stage and I'm just gonna let it rip and, and have some fun and enjoy this because this is something I worked really hard and I, I, I earned this opportunity. So I always tell my athletes, pressure's a, 
perspective. So make that perspective that it, it's a privilege. Because uh, pressure really is a privilege. If you're in a pressure situation, it means you're doing something that has meaning. Yeah. You're doing, you're doing something that matters, right? Um, no, to you know, be on, you could just be, you know, mediocre forever, but to be in a, a pressure packed situation, you had to get there somehow. So that's okay. I like absolutely. that. That's important. Absolutely. I would also say that, you know, I, I think if you were to ask what are considered the most, whoever are considered the most clutch athletes of all time, I think if you ask them about this, what they would say is that thriving under pressure is about preparation and learning from failures i think the guys that thrive under pressure are so prepared for the situation that when the situation comes it's just business as usual there's so much attention to detail and and nuance to their training and preparation that they're, they're just ready for that moment and i also think learning from your failures is so so critical i mean you, you can learn so much and grow so much with from your failures and i think the players that are clutch they are, they're clutch because they learn from their failures, whereas the guys that are chokers, they make excuses and they, 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 they blame others and they, they point the finger and they, they complain about their circumstances and all. And learning from your, your, your failures is so important. You have to embrace the adversity. You have to embrace some adversity because, for one, adversity is going to be inevitable on your journey to whatever big goals you have. If your goal is to win the Stanley Cup, you're going to face some challenges along the way. It's, it's not going to be smooth sailing. There's going to be some bumps in the road. But the thing is, facing that adversity makes you so much stronger and so much prepared because the skills you're forced to, to learn and, and the lessons you're forced to learn in overcoming that adversity, it prepares you for the next challenge you're, you're going to face. You know, I think about the St. Louis Blues. They were in last place midway through the season. They dug themselves in a huge hole. That is a tremendous amount of adversity to overcome. That, that is a tremendous amount of work to dig themselves out of that hole. But in digging themselves out of that hole and, and going through those challenges and, and overcoming that adversity, they were ready for whatever challenges they faced in the playoffs. So, you know, when, when it came to, to game seven in Boston, like pressure, like what? Like this is, this is another game. Like, you know, who cares? Because they were so ready for that moment. The uh, the idea of learning from your failures, like you said, in any sport, you're going to fail. We talk about the most clutch athletes ever. Tom freaking Brady wasn't a full-time starter at Michigan. He was a sixth-round pick. He carries that shit with him, and he's the most celebrated athlete of all time. And still, he's like, yeah. Like, Michael Jordan still talks about getting cut from his high school team. It's like, dog, you're Michael Jordan. That confidence, uh, the idea of learning from your mis- learning from your failures... The only way to apply it to me is about confidence. And you and I have been talking, you know, before this, like just about a guy like Reese Hoskins uh, and how he just goes into the tank sometimes. He's so streaky. And the idea that he's so hard on himself, you hear it so much. Like Gabe Kapler, I mean, he's positive with everybody, but I think you can really see it in the way he talks about Hoskins when Hoskins is cold. He just goes, we have all the confidence in the world in Reese. He's going to hit home runs and doubles. It's going to be fine. Like, trying to um, balance out not even how negative he is, just how hard he is on himself and how much pressure he puts on himself. You could be the highest level athlete there is. If you lose your confidence, that's it. How do you regain confidence? Like, if you can have it and lose it, where does it go and how the hell do you find it? Well, you know, to be honest with you, Yes, confidence is important. 
it, it, it is often a prerequisite for success, but I think our society has completely overrated confidence. I think it's a lot easier to do something when you are feeling confident, and it's a lot harder when you're not feeling confident. So I always tell athletes, man, like, I'd rather you be courageous than confident. Because to, to be courage, to have the courage to, you know, have some doubt and have some worries, but still go out there and do it, you know, I think that's more powerful than having confidence. With that being said, there is a lot of science and research to back that having self-confidence generally leads to more success. You know, like you can have all the confidence in the world and still fail. You can have be filled with doubt and still succeed. But generally speaking, if you're feeling confident, you're giving yourself a better chance to be successful. So we, we always throw this word confidence around. Well, what exactly is it? And when you look at the, the root words of confidence, the, the Latin root words of confidence, you have con and fidere, which roughly translates to with fidelity, with, with trust. Confidence is all about trust. It, it's, it's about trusting your training. It's about trusting your, your skills. It's about trusting your instincts. And confidence, is, it, it comes down to having trust in yourself. So how do you develop it? Well, what do you think comes first, Bill? Do you think confidence comes first or do you think success comes first? See, that's a big chicken and the egg thing. When we talk about preparedness, like, I can see why that's... Like, I was not confident that I could do this interview with you until I prepared for it, you know? Like, and now I'm prepared, so I'm confident that this doesn't sound like shit because I don't sound like a buffoon. So, like, like, so I guess you would have to be prepared before you're confident, and then in the future, you can draw upon your success to be confident. Am I, like, on the right track here? Absolutely. You know what? You're, you're, what which comes first, confidence or success? It, it's a chicken or the egg argument. You know, both. Yeah. You're, you're, okay. you're absolutely right. So there, there's two ways to understanding confidence. There's the, the outside-in approach and the inside-out approach. And so with the outside-in approach to confidence is that you experience success, and that leads to confidence, whereas the inside-out approach is, is you have the feeling of confidence first, and that leads to success. Now, they both work. There's legitimately le- legitimateness to, to both. I would say I would encourage an athlete to draw more from that inside-out approach because it's just simply more stable. You know, uh, so much of the outcomes is out of your control. So if you're basing all your confidence on wins and losses or your stats, like you're you're not really setting yourself up in a good place. Um, but you know, where does confidence come from? Very simply, your self talk. Confidence comes from the the internal do- dialogue you're having. It comes from the things you're telling yourself. Um, so a guy like Reese Hoskins, who's who's really struggling, like it, it's hard to have positive self talk when you're not having the results you're wanting. And, you know, it's a guy, he's, he's working his ass off. And it's a guy that really wants to win. It's a guy that is very competitive. He's, he's very motivated. He expects a lot out of himself. And to be working that as hard as he is and to know that he has the ability to do it but not experiencing the success, it's really hard to stay confident through that. I think the key to your self-talk is that, it, first of all, it doesn't have to be all sunshine and rainbows, you know. If you go 0 for 4 with three strikeouts and you come into the clubhouse and go, golly gee whiz, man, we sure had fun today. Like, I'm going to beat your head over with a bat. Like, no. The confidence should be credible. I'm sorry, the the self-talk should be credible, but there's got to be some kind of positive direction towards it. So there's a big difference between saying, man, like, I was 0 for 4 with three strikeouts. Like, I stink. 
I'm in a brutal cold streak. I'm never going to figure out. I don't know what the heck's going on. The media's going to be all over me. What you can simply say is, all right, you know, I, I put a couple good at-bats together. What did I do well here? All right, what, what could I do better? How can I do that better? Say, so, you know what, like, yeah, you know what, I, I, I want to move for four, but you, I, I ripped that one into the gap, and, and, and the center fielder made an unbelievable bat. What am I going to do about that? I think one of the big keys to confidence is to lean it in your process and your performance rather than the outcomes. Okay. So much of the outcomes are out of your control. You can, you can rip a ball into the gap, and the center fielder makes an unbelievable catch. You, you can rip a shot top right corner, and the goalie just makes an unbelievable glove save. You could hit a little blooper down the third baseline that barely lands in, in, in fair, and it turns into a double. You can take a shot from the red line that goes off of someone's stick and, and trickles into the net. So much of the outcome is completely out of your control. So focus on the process. You know, like if, if you're putting good at bats together and you know the hits aren't just coming, roll with that. If if you're you know you're buzzing around the net and you're getting good throwing chances, like don't worry about the fact that the puck's not going in. Just keep doing what you're doing well. Learn from your mistakes, and eventually you'll get there. I want to get into the idea a little bit now of um, how to how coaches can apply this stuff. We, we, we talked about, I mentioned Gabe Kapler, like he is very much all about that positive reinforcement. And if Reese comes up and has three strikeouts, it's like, well, he had that one at bat where he's really seeing the ball. So we like that. And we're going to build on that. And like with the flyers, we've heard a lot about late, like over the last few years, how hard Claude Drew is on himself and how, up and down emotionally Shane Gostas Bear is. Whatever the issue is that a coach is dealing with, manager, whomever, how does a coach apply some of these mental skills? Is it, again, just a case-by-case basis? Is there an overarching way to apply it? Well, Bill, the, the simple question, or the simple answer to your question is for coaches to reach out to your <laughs> local Capex Consulting, Mental Training and Peak Performance Specialists to learn about some of our coaching enrichment programs. Um, on a more serious note, I think one of the first things a coach can do to help their their players to develop mental toughness is for themselves as coaches to develop some emotional intelligence. So their ability to empathize with others and also be self-aware of themselves and how they're presenting themselves. And you know when, when the Eagles hired hired Doug Peterson. I was going to say that was the that was the phrase emotional intelligence. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know there, there's a lot of research and science now in, in the corporate world of how important uh, emotional intelligence is for all leaders. So I, I think that's a really good place to start. And really, I think what emotional intelligence comes down to is the way you communicate with your players. Um, I, I recently saw. On ESPN, they had that uh, 150 years of college football documentary. Yeah. And Nick Saban was talking about how coaching has changed from when he was a player to now. And he said, when he was a player, the coach told you what to do, and you just did it. Now, in, in this day and age, the athletes are so skilled. They're so experienced. They have so much knowledge of the game. He says that you can't, it's not enough just to, to tell them what to do. It's not enough just to tell them how to do it. If you want them to, to buy into it, you've got to tell them why. You've got to have open and honest lines of communication, right? 
So, you know, like, if, if you have a guy that, as a coach, who he really wants to be the first-line center, and you're looking at him as more of, like, a third, fourth-line kind of guy, you can either tell him, you're going to play third or fourth line because I'm the coach, and that's what I told you. Well, you know what? That guy's probably not going to give it his all. But if you say to him, listen, man, I understand that you think you should be a first-line center, and you know what? You're right. Like, you have a great skill set. You're offensively talented. You score a lot of goals. But the reality is the guys in front of you are more experienced and they're just better at it, right? So you're going to play this third, fourth line because that's what's best for the team. And that's going to give us the best chance to succeed. Now, if you buy into this role, you're going to make the team better. We're going to go deeper in the playoffs. There's going to be more game footage on you. You're going to get more opportunity to sign that big contract down the road, right? And so I think the days of the, the tyrannical coach, the, the authoritarian coach that, you know, just screams and hollers and yells and, and tells you, you're going to do this because I said so. That's kind of dying out, and coaches are understanding how important it is to, to have that emotional intelligence so that they, they can really communicate and, and you know, relate to their, their players so that the players will ultimately buy in them. That's some good stuff. Uh, and like Donato said, uh, he is a – damn it, I forgot your title again. Where'd it go? Here it is. Mental Training and Peak Performance Specialist at Capex Consulting. You're in Pittsburgh. Are there more locations, or how does it work? We are located in Pittsburgh. However, we do offer consultations over Skype, potentially. Okay. So um, if anyone's interested in, in checking and learning a little bit more about what we do, check out our website, uh, capexconsulting.com, um, and then feel free to, to reach us through there, or people can also follow me on Twitter and, and reach out to me there and um, I'd be happy to answer any questions people have. That's you can follow Donato at Don Otto. I love your at. It's really funny. Uh, it's it's just uh, fanatical D O N D O N A H T O E. Uh, you can follow him there. Uh, man, I really enjoyed this, and I think our our listeners are going to take something out of it. Is there anything? Uh, you think we didn't get to that you really want to make sure to, to drive home with people? Because this is a complex issue. You can go on about it. You're into it. But, like, what should people really take away from this interview? Well, I'll tell you what. I think next time we do this interview, I just want to spend the whole time breaking down the, the, the difference in mindset between Chip Kelly and Doug Peterson. Oh, God. Man, that, could be, that would be a fun rabbit hole to, to go down to. Um, my, my biggest, t- I think the, the biggest thing I want people to take away from this is that, you know, it, the, these are skills. These are something that, that can be developed with, with proper training and, and practice and patience and, you know, start early. And the, these are things that are not just for athletes. These are not skills that are just for athletes. You know, they can be applied to dancers, musicians, firefighter, police officers, EMTs, military, you know, really it comes down to who, who wouldn't benefit by being more confident, motivated, and focused in anything that they do in their life. Um, so these are things that, you know, yes, they're, they're going to help athletes reach peak performance levels, but, you know, these can help you in your everyday life and whatever pursuits you have. All right, man. Uh, thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us again. This is a BSH special episode with Donato Finelli, a mental training and peak performance specialist at Capex Consulting. Uh, again, I think people are really going to dig this. And the Carter Hart tie-in. I mean, that's all anyone needs, dude. That's that's all anyone needs. Uh, so thanks for... Oh, thanks for joining us, and everyone out there, thanks for listening, thanks for hanging out. Uh, My name is Bill Matz. Until next week, have a great week, everybody.